I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to the Trafe Podcast. Uh, it's been a bit since we had a full episode, but thanks for sticking with us. Do you know what number episode this is, David? I uh, 32. Correct. Ah, uh, thank you. Is there anything significant about the number 32? Nope. I cannot think of anything either. Yeah, it's not a significant number. 33, yes. Not 32. Nope. Um, but Sam. Yes, David? It is today, when people are listening to this, mm-hmm. the 11th of Av. That's great to hear. And two days after Tisha B'Av. Does that mean we are slowly backing our way into David Explains Jewish Holiday Territory? But I was going to ask you how your fast was. <laughs> <laughs> the joke is we don't fast because we're not practicing Jews. <laughs> But Tisha B'Av, which is a, a day of several cataclysms in Jewish history, mm-hmm. um, and I was I was reading through the five calamities. What was the most uh, severe calamity in your estimation? Well, what I'm thinking is right now in my life, the biggest calamity is this guy upstairs named Bruno who chain smokes all day and won't smoke outside. So I'm have poison air in my house all the time. It's so that's horrible. The sixth calamity. So that's David's sixth calamity right now. <laughs> Wait, can you list the five calamities? Um, originally, there was some situation with, the, I think it was the 10 spies. Most of the spies didn't believe God that they could conquer Israel or some nonsense. Anyway, then there was the destruction of the first temple, destruction of the second temple. Let's fact check this. Um, so according to Wikipedia, the first one is when the Romans crushed Bar Kokhba's revolt and destroyed uh, yeah. the city of Bitar, killing over 500,000 Jewish civilians. And the fifth calamity transpired in the wake of the Bar Kokhba revolt when the Roman commander plowed the site of the temple in Jerusalem and the surrounding area in 135 CE. So yeah, that's not particularly interesting. But Sam, what uh, what personal calamities are you <laughs> grappling with at the moment? I'm not sure exactly what personal calamity. I mean, can, can we talk about like structures and systems of power as like global calamities? I mean, we could, but that's not very interesting. We already know that. <laughs> But uh, I, what about the Sambit calamity? I feel like I normally have a ton of calamities on deck, but nothing is coming to mind right now. Yeah, I thought this would be a very rich well at the top. Yeah, no, I know. Um, you know what was a partial calamity, David? I woke up the other day, and I heard a thud. And I was like, oh, it's 7.15. It's a little too early for there to be construction in my neighborhood. So then I'm like, okay, let me wait it out a little bit. And like 5, 10, 15 seconds later, I hear another thud. I'm like, oh, this is weird. And um, when I lifted the sheets over my head, I noticed a tiny bird fluttering over my bed. Oh, did you just like leave your door open? <laughs> okay, so that's the weird part. We're just going to leave that up to mystery because I don't know how the bird actually got in the house. <laughs> like, I felt so bad because it just kept banging against uh, no. the screen. I don't know, but eventually I was able to open the screen and it flew out. But wow, um, What kind of bird was it? A small brown bird. I do not know birds. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad the bird got out okay. Yeah, me too. I was very scary for a hot second. So two medium calamities. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe we'll, I can relax the rules for a moment to talk mm-hmm. about things beyond the two of us and Please. our individual overprivileged lives. Mm-hmm. I think a large calamity is the political reality of Jewish institutions today. P.U. <laughs> P.U. indeed, Sam. Yes. Um, unfortunately, these mainstream Jewish institutions that exist in so-called U.S. and Canada are fairly reactionary and horrible politically. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, that's what we call in the biz a segue. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if there's one collective that we've been overtly critical of in the last two years of making this fine radio program, it's uh, the institutional Jewish community. I have to take issue with the fine characterization, but I think I think that's I think that's correct. Yeah, and I think we both wish that this were not the case, but consistently, the institutional Jewish community, whether on the local level or on the 
Canadian or U.S. or North American level, consistently sides with reactionary conservative forces in a way that serves to the detriment of most people. And today on the show, we're talking about two specific instances of this happening, specifically with the Jewish federations. Correct. The first discussion comes from an interview that we did at the Jewish Voice for Peace annual membership gathering in Chicago, where we talked to Leslie Williams about the campaign to get the Jewish Federation in Chicago to stop supporting overtly anti-Muslim and Islamophobic groups. We also got in touch with Sarah Tuttle, who lives in Seattle, to talk about the Jewish Federation's decision there to actually honor the chief police, I think it was the day after the police murder of Sherlina Lyles. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about here, so we'll get right to the interviews. This is your episode of Trafe for the 11th of Av 5777. Okay. Uh, so my name is Leslie Williams, and I live here in the Chicago area. And I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, but more recently I've been working with an initiative of Jewish Voice for Peace called the Network Against Islamophobia. And that's a project that's been going on for a couple of years, highlighting how Islamophobia as a form of racism is influencing and influenced by the debate over Palestine. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. We were hoping to start off with a general overview of this initiative for folks who aren't in Chicago. Can you give a sense of what this uh, project looks like right now? Sure. So the Network Against Islamophobia was begun by Donna Neville, who's a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. And she has developed a very rich curriculum on what the nature of Islamophobia is. She looks back at the history of it, how it's used as a tool to reinforce both U.S. policy and Israeli policy. And she also draws the connection to other aspects of racism. Um, I was in a session recently where people who work against Islamophobia were talking about how it's become almost a fad to be against Islamophobia, that a lot of liberal groups are saying that they're standing in solidarity with Muslims. You hear about a lot of interfaith dialogue groups and groups of Muslim and Jewish women getting together and having tea and sharing stories, and a lot of, oh, we just need to understand more about what Muhammad actually said, we need to understand more about what the Quran actually says. And, you know, that's nice. There's nothing really wrong with that. But that's not really getting at the roots of Islamophobia, because Islamophobia at its base is a form of racism. Uh, there are people who are victimized by Islamophobia who are not actually Muslim. They are racialized as Muslims. The first victim of the riots after 9-11 was a Sikh man who was assumed to be Muslim. So it's not about understanding the Quran. It's not about theology. It's a form of racism, but it's also not a coincidental form of racism. This is a form of racism that has been carefully nurtured and produced by the Israeli government, by the United States government, and by several very well-funded organizations. So delving a little bit deeper in the critique of the liberal approach towards Islamophobia, do you think it's fair to talk about it in terms of like an interpersonal question versus a structural question? 
Well, I think that comes up with racism of all forms. So, you know, if you look at a lot of the Hollywood movies about racism, you have often a really stereotypical, often fat white sheriff type who's the embodiment of racism, you know, the, in the heat of the night type thing. And I think that provides liberals with a lot of comforting reassurances that, oh, you're not really racist. You're not like this fat white guy with a Southern accent. That's what a racist looks like. It reassures them that they don't have to make these structural changes in their life or examine how their entire lifestyle is essentially based on the exploitation of black and brown people. And I think with this response to Islamophobia about, oh, we just need to get these individual people to understand Muslims and Islam better. And if we have more children getting together and playing together, this will go away. And if we have more of these little book clubs and discussions and dialogues between Muslims and Jews and Christians, this is going to go away. You know, you have people like Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, proudly declaiming that if there's a Muslim registry, his name will be the first on it, yada, yada, yada. Well, first of all, the ADL has been doing a lot of supporting Islamophobia as well and just relentlessly attacking organizations like the Council of American Islamic Relations. So I don't exactly think he's a poster boy for, you know, Muslim solidarity. So it's not just about this individual behavior and individual racism or bigotry. It's about structural racism. So sort of contrasting with uh, the liberal approach that you're talking about, my understanding is that the campaign is targeting the way that Jewish organizations are actually sponsoring and financing different Islamophobic campaigns, specifically in Chicago. Um, Can you talk a bit of how that's played out so far and what you've found? There are several major organizations that are referred to as the Islamophobia industry or the Islamophobia network. And this is not something that JVP originated. The Southern Poverty Law Center has talked about this. The Center for New Communities has talked about this. There have been several reports. There's one called Fear, Inc. that talks about the Islamophobia industry. And there are four or five organizations in particular that spend millions and millions of dollars actually creating and propagating anti-Muslim propaganda. Daniel Pipes, who is the leader of the Middle East Forum, is a major one. Uh, Steve Emerson with the Investigative Project on Terrorism is another one. So what JUF has been doing, and it's not just JUF, I mean, that's what Chicago is focusing on because this is the Jewish United Fund of Chicago. But what all these federations have been doing is actually funding some of these organizations. Several people who work with the Network Against Islamophobia actually were looking through their 990 forms, the you know tax forms where they report their income and their sources of income. And uh, they noticed that through their donor-advised funds, they've been contributing a lot of money directly to Daniel Pipes and to Stephen Emerson. So the donor-advised funds, you know, someone who has a lot of money and they want to put it away in a nice place, they can advise or suggest that the money goes to particular causes. Now, the federations do not have to follow that donor advice. I mean, if uh, someone donated money to them and it was a cause that they really didn't believe in, they would not necessarily follow the donor's guides. And as a matter of fact, we know that some of the federations have refused to donate to If Not Now, which is another Jewish organization opposed to the occupation. However, they didn't seem to see any problem in donating $600,000 to Daniel Pipes and donating $30,000 to Stephen Emerson. So at a time when the Jewish United Fund is at the same time 
talking about how they want to support Muslims. What we're saying to them is you have to decide. You can't both fund and fight Islamophobia at the same time. Are you really committed to solidarity with Muslims or are you just saying that and your real commitment is to any organization you see as supporting Israel no matter how racist it is? So since finding out this information, what has the strategy been about confronting the JUF and and other groups like that? So um, our initial strategy was (laughs) public shame. (laughs) So we um, put together a um, gift receipt, a return receipt, thanking them for all their donations. We made this gigantic 10-foot receipt out of cardboard that listed all the donations they had been giving to these organizations. And we carried it downtown, and we stood in front of the JUF, and we said, you know, why are you funding this hatred? And we pointed to the receipt, and it was on camera. We have great YouTube videos of it. And um, we did get the vice president of the JUF to come down, and we didn't exactly have a conversation. It was more a lot of his complaining about how his parents were turning over in their graves of what we were doing and how this was a libelous action, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But he did accept the report. Um, So we know that they now have the report, and they can't claim that they don't know about this anymore. Um, Now, of course, the JUF, it presents itself as being the Jewish organization in Chicago, the organization that all forms of Judaism and all Jews in Chicago are in some way connected to. And that is very much true because most synagogues and uh, things like Jewish community centers and also a lot of other Jewish organizations are connected to the JUF. They either get money from the JUF, some of them give money to the JUF. So we sent emails to 414 organizations and representatives of organizations in the Chicago area saying, we now know, we have evidence that the JUF has been supporting anti-Muslim extremists, and we would like to know what you're going to do about it. We realize that organizations that are dependent on financing from the JUF, it's unrealistic for them to pull out completely overnight, but we hope that they will at least express publicly their dismay about it and a plan to separate themselves from the JUF if the JUF doesn't change its own policies. And the third part of our strategy is simply going to be more education in the Jewish community. We want to take this report around to other synagogues, to Jewish organizations, to Hillel chapters, to any Jewish organizations in the Chicago area, and just say, this is what the JUF is doing with your money. You believe that the JUF is an organization that represents the best of Jewish values. If you think that should be the case, then I think it's up to you to challenge them on this. I'm interested in hearing how you came to this specific campaign and and to this work and how it got started. Is that something uh, you feel comfortable talking about? Sure. I had been pretty much edging into being non-Zionist, anti-Zionist for quite a while. Um, Because I'm a convert, Um, you can't see this on the radio, but I'm African-American, I didn't have the same experience that a lot of my friends did of growing up in very strong Zionist circles and having to break away from that. So for me, that wasn't really terribly difficult. But I wasn't really active in pro-Palestinian or anti-Zionist movements until fairly recently. What really, I think, kind of pushed me into it, it was during the time of the Republican presidential debates in 2015. And I was feeling in my community of Evanston, there was a lot of depression, there was a lot of hopelessness among people. Um, My rabbi, Brant Rosen, had said that he felt as though we were living in the Weimar Republic just before the Nazis took over. And there's this real sense that we really want to do something, that we sense this rising tide of bigotry, and nobody knew what to do about it. Um, So in my own community, Evanston, I organized something called uh, Stand with Muslims. It was not officially a JVP action. JVP was one of the organizations that I invited to participate. 
But I also involved our local interfaith action organization, our YWCA, because their mission is anti-racism work, several churches, several synagogues. And we have a mosque in Evanston that very few people actually knew about or had any connection with. And the mosque had been very kind of isolated from the community. So it was really wonderful to see all these people from the mosque come out and to be there in solidarity with Christian groups and Jewish groups. And actually, JVP got in touch with me after that and said, you know, how would you like to do this kind of on a regular basis? And um, they invited me to become a member. And that's how I got involved with the network. So if people want to follow the campaign or find out ways that they can replicate it in their own communities, uh, how can they touch base or how can they read more about it? Best way is just to go to the Jewish Voice for Peace website or just to Google Network Against Islamophobia and it'll come up. Uh, We have a wonderful curriculum that people can use to introduce the issues to their college, to their Hillel chapter, their synagogue or their church, activist groups. There's even guidelines on how to do an action. I know other Network Against Islamophobia chapters are very active in anti-racism work, for example, in places like North Carolina Triangle area in Portland and in Boston. So there are a lot of different ways to get involved with, with what we're doing. Well, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and uh, for taking the time to talk with us. Delighted. Thank you so much for having me. This is Jessica calling you from West Philadelphia to tell you about the Radical Jewish Calendar Project. Orders are now open for our 5778 calendar, which is organized by Jewish Month so that you can fight Christian hegemony right there on your wall every day of the year. The calendar includes original art by 12 amazing artists. Jewish holidays and history are alongside radical political histories. Order by the 1st of Elul, the 23rd of August, to get your calendar by Rosh Hashanah. You can do so at radicaljewishcalendar.bigcartel.com. The calendar is sliding scale, 10 to 36, pay what you can. We're pretty sure that if you're listening to this podcast, it might be a good wall calendar for you or someone or everyone who you love or even know. My name is Sarah Tuttle. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I'm a community member at Kadima, a reconstructionist organization in Seattle. Um, I'm also on the board at Kadima and the treasurer as well. I'm also a professor of astronomy at the University of Washington. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. I'm really happy to be here. So the reason we got in touch is we learned that the Seattle Jewish Federation had planned to honor the Seattle chief of police. And can you maybe just before we get into all the details and all the context, can you talk a bit about when you learned about this piece of information? Yeah, so I learned about what was going on several weeks ago because the Federation was sending out invitations to attend what was their annual meeting and award ceremony. 
so many of us in sort of the progressive Jewish community around here were concerned and a little bit confused about their choice to award the Tikkun Olam Award, both to the chief, Kathleen O'Toole, as well as to overall the Seattle Police Department. There was already some organizing and some momentum and, you know, trying to decide ways that one could push back against this focus for the Federation. Just for, you know, a little bit of context for what they thought they were doing, they chose to honor the SPD for very specific reasons. In particular, the SPD has committed to this mandatory training based around the Holocaust, as well as doing some relationship building with Safe Washington that ironically combats hate crimes. But that for them was focused around anti-Semitism. Our listeners, I'm sure, have been reading about the the killing of Shalina Lyles by the Seattle police uh, that happened uh, in about mid-June. Can you maybe give our listeners who are listening from outside of Seattle a bit more of the context for the Seattle Police Department? So the Seattle Police Department is one of many police departments that is under a variety of investigations and or rulings um, by the Department of Justice for being unjust in the way that they interact with people of color, in particular with African-Americans in our communities. And in fact, that precinct, I think, I'm terrible with police lingo, that precinct in particular was notorious for issues. And where Lena Lyles was living, that community is predominantly community of color. So it, it was distasteful already, but it was really unthinkable that Four days after her murder, the Federation would then honor the police department. So when I when I first heard about this decision by the Federation, it immediately reminded me, um, following the uprising in Ferguson, the St. Louis Police Department was being honored by the Anti-Defamation League for going through a similar training. And, and activists there, I think it was a local Jewish Voice for Peace chapter, mobilized and, and tried to prevent the ADL from giving that award in that context. Has has anything like this happened before in Seattle, or have you seen anything like this in terms of the relationship of institutional Jewish groups and the police? Hmm. So I can't comment on that directly. I'm quite new to Seattle. You know, I can say that there have been issues around, you know, the climate post-election around the country. And so certainly the police department has worked with religious communities all around the Puget Sound area to try and make sure congregations of many denominations feel safer, whatever that means. And that's actually something that we also as a community have engaged because as a multiracial community, there was a huge conversation. You know, some Jews felt like, oh, we should definitely bring the police into our community to help us feel more safe. And many other of our community members who are marginalized were like, we really don't feel safe having the police. That's not the thing that makes us feel safer. So even outside of the context of the award, there has been a lot of conversation around what our relationship is as a community to the police and what that means for many of our members. That's really interesting because I think that's that probably is an issue that a lot of Jewish communities across North America are trying to think about right now. Because many of us grew up with police outside of at least high holidays, if not more, right? I'm not sure in Montreal, but I can tell you in the United States or in England, both places I've lived, Frequently at the high holidays, you at least have, you know, a police car in the parking lot or people standing in front. And uh, I'm almost 40. That's been my entire life that I remember and, you know, living in many different places. So, you know, really engaging that conversation about the police relationship to the community, I think, is important. 
Yeah, because the question that I was going to get to was this idea of how the mobilization around this event happened in the sense that was it more of an internal conversation about whether or not we should honor the SPD or whether it was part of the broader mobilization led by Black Lives Matter in Seattle? Right. So as far as I know, and I was fairly involved, it was Jewish groups that mobilized. BLM mobilized a bunch around Charlie Malisle's murder. This was really, I think, for us, felt like holding our community to account uh, and making sure that the focus was on the right place at that time, which was honoring Charlena and pushing back against the police department. In the end, it was kind of a broad coalition of progressive Jewish groups, if not now, and JVP, Kadima, and several other groups, just a lot of very rushed phone calls, you know, trying to talk our way through what our goals were and how we could execute those in a way that, you know, not centering ourselves with what was going on locally, but making sure the message was really clear to the Federation that it wasn't acceptable to us that this award happened in the name of Jews in Seattle. So, I mean, as a result of that mobilization, I know there was a petition and it seemed like the pressure forced the Federation to postpone their event that was honoring the police chief, but they've said that they still intend to honor this person at a later date. Can you talk a bit about what people are envisioning going forward from here? I mean, I will only speak for myself since obviously things arose organically and to continue to be organic. I don't expect it to be something that we will just let roll by. Certainly as a white Ashkenazi Jew, it's really important for me to make room for Jews of color, for Sephardic Jews, for us to understand that our community is larger and different than we often assume that it is. You know, the Federation took an unfortunate way out, I think. You know, at least they got the overwhelming message, although I'm not sure they exactly understood why. In the end, the Federation released an unfortunate letter that said, the demonstrators, you know, they were postponing things for reasons of safety. There was never any threat to safety. There was a small number of people who were, at the beginning, we were not even trying to stop their annual meeting. We just asked to be able to say Kaddish for Charlene Lyles and to just take a moment to kind of reflect on that relationship with the community. And they chose to postpone and sort of blame us for threatening violence, which is unfortunate. We'd like them to imagine that the umbrella of Judaism is big enough for all of us. So before you are in Seattle, had you ever found yourself in a sort of conflictual role with uh, an institutional Jewish group before this? So that's an interesting question. This was not my primary battle when I lived in Texas. So in that sense, no, although throughout my activism, occasionally I have found myself pushing back against other Jewish institutions. I think that, you know, even in my fairly progressive Jewish upbringing, you know, in say like the 80s and early 90s. I think that, for example, my views on social justice and what that means in relationship to Israel-Palestine and how that then reflects back on the politics and the social justice work that we're doing here in the States and locally has just has changed a lot, I think, which was which was a hard break for me. I think that, you know, watching here in the States, Jewish organizations felt the need to push back because the vision and the statement for Black Lives pushed back about Israel. And so for some people, that was really a line in the sand, as opposed to an opportunity to engage in dialogue and say, maybe we have not engaged in this critically as people who believe in social justice. And so I think that that blindness has been really difficult um, and has has been something that 
people are are struggling to deal with. Um, so for folks listening who are similarly outraged by the Federation's decision to honor the Seattle police chief, how can they, from a distance, or, or even if folks are in Seattle, how can people help to stop this from happening? So I would stay tuned. We are still organizing for possible responses. I don't have a good sense of how the Federation intends to move forward. I think they have to have an annual meeting, but if they choose to do that separately or if they choose to postpone to next year or whatever, all of our organizations will still be here and we'll still be doing this work. So, you know, reaching out to any of those progressive Jewish groups, reaching out to Kadima, if not now, JVP, those groups are all involved and could definitely connect you up. But it's two parts. It's doing the internal work to make sure that our communities are accountable to our values and also staying attuned to the leadership in Black Lives Matter. You know, so when the Federation postponed the annual meeting, many of the people who were involved instead went down. There was a Black Lives Matter march downtown and so many people just went. So, you know, I think that, again, it's important for us in these moments both to keep our direct community accountable make sure that we're making that space for Jews of color and also make sure that we're working with our larger community to keep people safe because I don't want to lose track of the focus, which is really a lot more important than us scuffing with the Federation. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about this. It was really great to get to talk with you. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope, who knows, sometime in the next, you know, week to 16 months, we could have this conversation again. (laughs) Anything is possible. Yeah. Here's hoping it's under uh, much better circumstances. Agreed. Thanks so much. The Babylonians, the Romans, and the Raisin Bagels. I don't agree, but it's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! Shkoyach. Shkoyach. Welcome to Shkoyach. Salut, bonjour. Uh, Sam. Yes, David. What is your Shkoyach for the week? I am very happy to bring to the table a positive Shkoyach. That's great that celebrates activism, community struggle, and uh, general success. Oh, that's great. I'm not doing that, so that's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> so my shkoya goes to a group of activists who helped organize to bring Bisan Eid back to Montreal. Occupied Tiatiake. Yes, Bisan is a student at Concordia University, one of the major schools in Montreal. And she had gone to visit her grandmother in Gaza in the summer of 2016. She was planning to come back in December and start the winter semester. But basically, the Israelis would not let her out of Gaza. She also had a small child during this period. And activists in Montreal organized to help bring her back. And on the 30th of June, Bisan, her young daughter Sarah, and several other folks who were stuck in Gaza were able to come back to Canada. Yeah, especially Shkoyach to, to Daman, who is a Montreal-based group that were very involved in this. I mean, full disclosure, me, both me and Sam have uh, been affiliated in different ways with this group over time. Yeah, no, I've been a full-time <laughs> member for quite some time. Um, but I, I know that actually there's another campaign that maybe we should mention that's relevant to the show that Tadaman's also involved with going on right now. Totally. Again, it's very Montreal-specific, but it touches on a lot of bigger issues facing Palestinians across North America and actually something that's fairly replicable. Uh, Omar Ben Ali is a Palestinian who came to Canada in 2008 
and he has been denied refugee status continuously. However, because of the situation, Palestinians can't be sent back to what is considered Israel, and therefore he is stuck in Canada in a limbo status. So there's been mobilizing to try and get him status in Canada and help him bring his family from the West Bank to Canada. So the campaign is Solidarity with Omar Ben Ali, and you can check that out on Tadamon's website, tadamon.ca. And once again, shkoyach to folks on the ground organizing to try to change the circumstances for some people on a quotidian basis. Quotidian? Yes. Uh, that's your law school education coming out. <laughs> Not exactly. That's, that's a very positive shkoyach. I'm very happy about our two positive shkoyachs today. So yeah. you're going to bring down the mood with a negative one? Most definitely. Great. So my shkoyach for today goes to the Richview branch of the Toronto Public Library. And I think you know where I'm going with this. I think you're going to tell me that the Toronto Public Library system has very good access to recent comic books. Um, I mean, that's true. But no, no, no. It's an anti to specifically the Richview branch, which is in Etobicoke, for those familiar with Toronto geography. And for those who are not familiar with Toronto geography and who followed the tabloids of two or three years ago, Etobicoke is where Rob Ford is from. Oh, yeah. And on that note, this branch held a memorial service. So part of what the Toronto Public Library offers is you can rent rooms and and have events there. Which seems like a generally good idea. Yeah, I mean, I've booked rooms there before. And one person in particular booked the Richview branch for a memorial service for a friend who had died recently. Sounds like a very non-controversial story that has nothing to be added. (laughs) Yeah, so the person that was being memorialized was Barbara Kurlaska who is essentially the lawyer for the elite of the white nationalist and white supremacist movement in Canada over the past 25 years. So we're talking about the old guard, people like Ernst Zundel, uh, notorious Holocaust denier, Paul Fromm, or Mark Lemire, who is the last president of the Heritage Front in Toronto. She was the person who kept them out of prison. Well, not the loveliest of persons. Yeah, I mean, you might say, well, you know, lawyers defend people they don't agree with. People should be able to be moralized in public spaces. Uh, she was actually the liberal David over here. Well, I mean, I just want to I just want to make sure people know who we're talking about here because she she was the editor of the book. Did six million really die? Wow. The, yeah, the, the book. that book really hits that title really hits it on the head there. Yeah, the, it was it was about the Zundel trial in Germany because they eventually extradited him back. Oh um, boy, oh so, boy. So anyway, the, you can imagine who showed up for this memorial and who was organizing it. It was the old guard of the neo-Nazi and white nationalist movement in Canada. That's very unpleasant. And he had about 25 people. All these people were there. And so how did the Toronto, is it TPL? How did the Toronto Public Library defend this decision? Free speech? People wrote them when they found out. Uh, A Holocaust survivor wrote them. And they sent back these sort of form emails just saying that this doesn't violate our terms of service. And when anti-fascists showed up to protest it, the library called the cops. Oh, Lord. Yeah, it was a very, very bad style. So did the event go on without any hitch? Unfortunately, it transpired. Jeez Louise. Yeah, it, it only really became public a day or two beforehand. So I don't think people had quite enough time to mobilize to the degree they would need to to have shut it down. Mm. And to be fair, a lot of people pressured, including the mayor of Toronto, uh, who is a demon in his own right, but he came out and and, and pressured the library to cancel it, and they still didn't. They got legal advice, they said, that withdrawing (laughs) the booking would open them up to liability of some sort. Hashtag legal advice. So anyway, anti-shkoyak to whoever's in charge of the Richview branch of the Toronto Public Library for being a Nazi sympathizer and thinking it's fine to host Nazis and then call the cops and private security on people trying to protest the Nazis. Yeah, buzz off, TPL. Kadash.
So that's our episode for today. As usual, all the articles we mentioned and most of the specifics of the conversations will be reflected in the show notes. There'll be a lot of links, and we include a link to the show notes in the description of the episode, so you can click on that. And if you're listening to the episode today and thought, hey, I'm organizing a campaign against my federation in my town, and you think that we should know about it, send us an email. Or a voice memo. Uh, One to two minutes. Just start with your name and where you're calling from, and you can let Trafe listeners know whatever you're working on. Sounds like a groovy idea. As per usual, please give us a positive review on iTunes. I think it's called Apple Podcasts now. Yeah, I don't quite understand. I I have the iPhone 4S, so it doesn't update with all this new stuff, so I don't really know what's going on. (laughs) We're also introducing a quasi-regular mailbag episode where we'll answer letters from listeners. So if you have any questions you'd like us to answer on air, please send us an email, trayofpodcasts at gmail.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at trayofpodcast, T-R-E-Y-F. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks as always to Cadence O'Neill, to Kira Page, to Claire Hertig, to C. Lavery, to Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi, and to So Called and Sack Syndrome for the music you heard in the episode. You can follow us on social media at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. You can send us hate mail, positive notes, any kind of suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back with more episodes soon. I think that clears- also hats. What's with hats? People sometimes have them on their belts. What's with pants? Also, I'm really hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So also that lamp's hurting my eyes. What's the deal with lampshades? <laughs> <laughs>